Hey guys, so we are still recouping and we're busy with the vintage weekend at Road America this weekend. And for the record, my wife and I had a delightful time in our climate controlled cabin with a comfy new mattress and an actual bed. And guess what? There were zero mosquitoes in the cabin there, which obviously, as you heard on Friday, Chris could not say the same of his camping experience. We will no doubt have a bunch to recap from the weekend and still working on some awesome interviews that Chris mentioned on Friday. Anyways, I wanted to release an awesome history episode that recorded years back about the crazy origin and history of a French manufacturer. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And I'm excited because we have a history episode and I really yes. like these. I love having stories told to me. And I also love it because generally we only do these for the Patreons. So we slip one in every once in a while under the <laughs> radar. And I think this one's going to be really, really, really good. Anyway, so we have, uh, before we get into, why don't you tell us a little bit about Patreon? Yes, go over to patreon.com slash overcrest, and we have exclusive content. As Chris mentioned, I do a lot of these history stories uh, for Patreon only. So there's exclusive content out there you can check out. A bunch of Patreon subscribers also just got t-shirts, prints. Print. And I, I know some people are waiting for shirts. We're waiting for the shirts to come into us so that we can make them. Right. Like I said, we make them all in our garage. We make the shirts. We sew the tags on and get them out to you. Um, to keep costs down. That's yeah. what we do. But no, I was referring to the fact that if you're at a top tier uh, Patreon now, there's a $25 tier yep. where you can have a print printed out and signed by you, Chris. That's right. And you were just saying the ones <laughs> that you printed out are so awesome. Well, you've got one. I got one for yep. you as a gift for something. I don't remember what it was. And I got you a print. Right. It was Christmas. It was Christmas present. Yeah, you're right. And then I got you a print. And then someone ordered, they wanted the same one. Okay. But then someone else wanted a picture of a 934. Gotcha. One of the Chicago guys, Merrick, wanted a 934. I'm like, oh, I got a great shot of the yellow. Uh, I think it's the, I think it's the Puerto Rico 934. Okay. Flying, and it's 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 a cool shot. And I'm like, man, that almost would have been really good on our wall too, <laughs> because I shot it really really slow. Sure. So you get a lot of the motion. Blur. You get a lot of motion. All the signs go away. All the people go away. Oh, that's cool. Everything just turns into blur, except for the colorful car. shapes, except for the car. Which you know, when you're shooting that slow, you get a lot of garbage. Yeah. It was actually shooting the the Porsche 919 there is was I, what I was waiting for, which okay. is the record-breaking car. Yeah. They were there to break the record at Laguna Seca. And I remember sitting there waiting for it, and it was gone. <laughs> I mean, it was it went by so fast. I never got – I didn't get a photo. I got oh, other photos goodness. of it, but at that spot, I didn't get a photo. I wanted to get Not a photo a of everybody off. lined up on the fence with the car right there. That would have been sweet. Looking at it as it was breaking the record was what I really wanted, but it's not that loud. And it came so, up. Oh, you didn't even hear it. You didn't hear it coming. And then it was just gone. It was just gone. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was. So I, I was shooting at that point at uh, a 25th of a second. Okay. And I only got like three shots in in this whole. So it goes from here to here in the frame, which is quite a ways in like a second. It's gone. Wow. So, but um, that's where I took the shot of that 934, which I really like. So if you want to get a print for me, right. that's special. We'll go through my, you know, if you're looking for something, uh, you know, hit me yeah, up. Yeah, because can, that guy said he just would like to see a 934. So I went through the archive and found him something. Yeah, and I'd so be happy to do that with you. On Patreon. Yep, patreon.com slash overcrest. Anyway, let's get to the, the history story, the All much right. anticipated. Let's do it. So our the, I love that the name of this says Mystery History. I think that's going to be my <laughs> new segment, Mystery History with Jake on Overcrest. Okay, that sounds good. Let's get to it. So our story today begins on February 5th, 1878. I remember those days. In Paris, France. Have you been to France? I've not. I have not. Well, I was at the airport, and the only thing I remember about being at the airport is that it smelled really bad, and there was dudes with guns everywhere. Oh, that's my only impression I you were of France. Say like nice wine, baguettes. Nope. People smoking. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So February fifth, eighteen seventy-eight, in Paris. That is the day the diamond merchant Levy from the Netherlands and his wife Maza from Warsaw, Poland, welcomed their fifth child, André Gustave, into the world. So you know why everybody had tons of kids back then, right? Because half of them died. <laughs> that's, that's probably true. But it's because they had to help out on the farm. 
You had to. You're, well, you had Jimmy a huge has fan. rickets, and the other one died of polio. So yeah, you need to hedge your bets here you a little bit. Well, you also need somebody to get up in the morning and do the cows and do the corn and fertilize this and do that, this or the other thing. You had to have your whole family there. Yes, it's a family endeavor. Well, he was a diamond merchant, so not really working on the farm. <laughs> I suppose not. No excuse for the, the well the, for the train of children. And five really isn't that many. I beg to differ. For, as a father, I completely incorrect. All right. Anyways, the family, all five of them, moved to Paris five years earlier from their previous home in Warsaw. Now, upon arrival, Levy, the father, decided to add the French diaresis, or basically the umlaut, to their surname. Okay? okay, giving the family a decidedly French-sounding name. <laughs> okay, and I found that their name is actually of Dutch origin, meaning lemon, as Levy's grandfather was said to have a, been a fruit grocer in the Netherlands. But we digress. Back to Andre. It's said that he was inspired by reading the works of Jules Verne and had witnessed the actual construction of the Eiffel Tower back in the day, which made a lasting impression on the boy, making him want to become an engineer. So I, f I think that it would have been really interesting to grow up. I think this is, you know, industrial revolution, kind of yeah. pre-industrial revolution. It's in today's society, everything that advances is kind of in the digital realm, yes, right? We don't exactly. see... We don't necessi necessarily see mechanical. Inspiring. You it's don't not. see the Eiffel Tower being built. Imagine being in even even just in Minneapolis and watching the Fauchet Tower be built. True. That or was the it, biggest building. It was the biggest building or seeing the Empire State Building go up or yeah. taking an elevator to the top and just being absolutely blown away or just being there and watching a car drive by for the first time or a tr seeing a train, or getting cold milk out of a refrigerator for the first time. <laughs> Any of this stuff. I know. Now all, our, all of our innovations are just, I mean, there's medical innovations, which are pretty cool, but nobody goes, wow, I have this disease cured. I'm really inspired now because you were, you're probably old and you're about to die anyway, and all your inspiration time <laughs> is way behind you. No, now we just uh, sit so in front of being Twitch this boy. and YouTube and watch someone else do stuff. Watch exactly. Imagine being this boy and seeing the yes. Eiffel Tower built. Imagine being anyone and seeing something of that yeah. magnitude. How awesome! Um, amazing. So remember that part about the Eiffel Tower, Chris, and because it, it really worked. It wasn't long before Andre graduated from the École Polytechnique in 1900. That same year, he traveled to Poland, the birthland of his mother, who had recently passed away. Now, while exploring the small countryside towns of Poland, he came across a local carpenter working on a set of wooden gears with a decidedly fishbone structure. Andre noticed that these gears were less noisy and more efficient than their standard straight-cut cogs. And after a bit of conversation with this local tradesman, Andre brought the pat bought the patent for this design for what was said to be very little money, leading to the, quote, invention of the double helical gears. That's an important one. So, first of all, did this local carpenter hold the patent for these? I doubt it. Did, did Andre just say, hey, I really like this idea. I'm going to buy the concept from you. And then he went out and patented it. And, and second of all, invention? He didn't invent it. He just noticed a local tradesman doing this. Right. Whatever. Now, Chris, can you picture what a double helical gear is? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's well, explain just, it to me anyway. Yeah, let's describe it a little bit. So a straight, when you think of just old-fashioned gear sets, it's you have teeth on a wheel and they interlace, right? Right. Now, a helical gear has the bevel to them. So they're basically, uh, think of them angled right. on that cylinder. And this is be then that they'll basically mesh easier from one side to the next, and they're quieter then because right. they do that. A double helix, the problem with that helix is then you have torsional forces because you're basically pushing one aside as you're rolling the gear At all times, the other. it's trying to fight exactly. itself at all times. A double helical is basically, think of them coming, these teeth come to a point in the middle of the gear set, Okay. right? So they interlace now, but there's no torsional forces, and it's still quiet because they're not straight cut gears right that's why race cars all have straight cart gearboxes well that's, and that's the strongest way like. it's the strongest way it to do the it strongest but you also hear yeah. it's that whine yeah. but that's you also know that's how you know your transmission's about to explode is when you hear if you don't have straight cut gears <laughs> and it sounds, and it sounds like, like, you, like that yeah. is that coming from personal experience <laughs> yeah it's not a good not a good okay so keep in mind though again the double helical gear set innovation with that, we're going to fast forward to 1908. Andre was installed as a chairman for the Moore's Automobile Company. He's a chairman 
of a company at age 30. Okay, that's pretty good. Now, well, being a your father is a diamond merchant. I mean, I don't, you, pro- I don't think he was that successful of a diamond merchant. He was are like, we talking what kind of are we talking about like hiding diamonds in your butt diamond merchant? Or are we I talking about going? <laughs> I didn't look into that part. Wasn't there's very there's a different the story. There's different variations of I, diamond I, merchant. I'll say I don't. I didn't get the concept. There was a lot of family money. Okay. Okay. Uh, so sidebar: He's chairman of the Moore's automobile company the morris automobile company was a very small french manufacturer and one of the first to take part in auto racing beginning in 1897 why do i have an alarm set for 7 30 p.m we better find out what's going on at 7 30 p.m <laughs> <laughs> you got somewhere else to be I think on that note we'll be- see you guys later <laughs> thanks for listening to the podcast we'll get to the rest of this next week I think that was supposed to be AM, and I just did the PM and just didn't notice it never went off this morning. That's all right. right. Anyways, uh, Morris, the company founder, Emily, El- Emily, it's it's a man, Emil Morris, believed that the trials of racing was the best way to develop new technological innovations and also recognize the inherent promotional benefits of being out there racing, which I thought was pretty cool this early on. He's like, you know what? We need to take our cars racing because that's how you really figure out what's going to break. Yeah, how they develop yeah exactly. New, you know, technologies. Um, but apparently it didn't work out too well for them <laughs> because I've never heard of Moors. And the class car they ever developed was around 1914. Some of that, of course, could have had something to do with the war. Yes. That's We're talking World, World War One. Yeah. Yeah. So during World War One, our protagonist Andre was made responsible for mass production of armaments for the French. He actually gained international recognition during the war as the leading production expert in France. So he is kind of like this up-and-coming industrialist guy. His activities were extensive in connection with the Renault plant, which employed thirty-five thousand men in manufacturing of munitions during the First World War. After the war, Andre took his expertise and founded his very own car company. For the next 15 years, the company steadily grew. Then in 1934, the firm established its reputation for innovative technology with this new model, the Traction Avant. The what? The Traction Avant. Avant? Like wagon? Yeah. Traction wagon, basically. Traction wagon. <laughs> that's actually a pretty good yeah. name. It's, it's, it's <laughs> almost Audi- as good as Power Wagon. <laughs> yeah. I actually like Traction Wagon I better. too. So the car was the world's first mass-produced front-wheel drive car, and also one of the first to feature unibody construction. So there's no separate frame from the chassis supporting all the mechanical bets. Andre was something of a marketing revolutionary as well. From 1925 to 1934, when this car was released, his company's name was lit in massive signs adorning three sides of the Eiffel Tower. Wow. Are you kidding me? It was the tallest advertising space in the world and was recorded by Guinness World Records. Okay, so... for From 25 to 34, for nine years. So has anybody else been... I don't think you're, you can do that in the Eiffel Tower no, anymore. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you cannot. No. But again, think back. He was so inspired by seeing this thing built. And how cool is it then? What is it? Like th- 35 years later, he's like, my company name is on, on the, the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. So he looked up at it. And now he's looking down from it yeah. with his company. That's pretty cool. That is cool. However, between the quick development of the Traction Avant, tearing down and rebuilding the entire factory in only five months... And the extensive marketing well, let's efforts. Well, let's be honest that there wasn't, the, the factories weren't very complex back then. True. I mean, you're, you're talking little dudes with hammers, basically. Hey, yeah. put your hammer over on this side of the warehouse Still. instead of that side of the warehouse. Obviously, that's a little exaggeration, but they didn't have to, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have to do that much. They had to push some stuff around. I'm trying to give them a little benefit of the doubt here. Okay. Sure. So quick development of this new vehicle. He rebuilt the whole factory and obviously extensive marketing efforts. The company found itself with investments that were too costly to maintain. So, in December of 1934, despite the assistance of the Michelin Company, yes, that Michelin. All right. I didn't. I mean, I guess I knew Michelin was a French name, but I didn't realize it had been around this long. So, despite the efforts of the Michelin Company, they filed for bankruptcy. Within the month, Michelin, who was already the car manufacturer's largest investor at the time, became its principal shareholder. However, 
the technologically advanced traction avant model had become a huge success. And the basic philosophy of cutting edge technology being used as a differentiator. This isn't about luxury. This isn't about the fastest cars. They're being technically advanced. Right. That differentiator continued right up until the late 1990s. So what is this massive French automaker that we're talking about? Well, Chris, recall that Andre's great-grandfather took his surname from a lemon, being a fruit grocer. Well, lemon is, of course, a citrus fruit. So you may recognize the Dutch word citrion. And, as I mentioned, when André's father moved from France, he adopted not only the French punctuation, but also pronunciation of the name Citroën. Awesome. Also interesting to note, remember André's first innovation he brought to market there? The double helical gears. Take a look at that now familiar Citroën logo. Those two chevrons are actually a stylized representation of the double helical gears. That's I never. That's interesting to know. I never I, knew that either. That was really cool. Now, Andre Citroen himself died from stomach cancer in 1935 while the company was under Michelin ownership. But, as we know, that certainly wasn't the end for Citroen. The new management commissioned a countrywide marketing survey. The entirety of France was surveyed for market research. France at the time had a large rural population which could not yet afford cars. This is 1935. Many, if not most farmers and laborers still use horses and carts to get around as their tri primary transportation. So- And this is circa when? 35, okay, 1935. Okay, so this is kind of pre-war. Pre-Second World War, right. correct. So, but they're still recovering from World War One. Well, as is all of Europe. Exactly. This isn't the U.S., this is Europe. <laughs> so Citroen used the results of this survey to prepare a design brief for a low-priced, rugged, quote, umbrella on four wheels. <laughs> That's what I want when I'm... The, I, when, I'm the guy riding around a horse going, man, you know what I wish I had? An, um, umbrella. an umbrella on wheels. <laughs> so... <laughs> They, they wanted something that would enable four people to transport 50 kilograms of farm goods to a market at 50 kilometers an hour and, if necessary, across muddy, unpaved roads. One further design parameter required that customers be able to drive eggs across a freshly plowed field without breakage. And they did. And they did. And I saw a, I think it was... I don't remember what show. It might have been Top Gear USA. Oh, did they do that? They did it, and they gave them a big pile of eggs and forced them to like drive across fields and within a certain <laughs> amount of time. And it was marginally successful, <laughs> depending on who was actually driving the car. So, in 1936, the following year, Vice President of Citroën Pierre Jules Boulanger, Boulanger, Boulanger along with the chief of engineering design, sent the brief to his design and engineering teams. The TPV, or toute petite voiture, which translates to very small car, was okay. to be developed in secrecy at Michelin facilities. Everything in French sounds cool until you find out what it actually yeah. means. <laughs> toute petite voiture. That sounds awesome, but it just very means... small car. <laughs> <laughs> so Bollinger closely monitored all decisions relating to the TPV project, proposing strictly reduced target weights. What I liked about this was kind of the parallel to racing programs. Right. So they wanted to make it as fuel efficient, lightweight, and reliable as possible. So he created an entire department that would weigh and redesign every component of all the prototypes that this team came up with. Basically just to lighten the TPV without compromising function. Was this thing always called a TPV or are we finding out that it's something else later? We will find out. Okay, because I was like, TPV. I've never heard of a so TPV. The TPV was the project, right? This is the project called the Very Small Car Project. Okay. okay. <laughs> so Bollinger then placed engineer André Lefebvre. 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 <laughs> you need to, we need to find a French guy for you to talk to so you can get these... You know, my down. wife, Nikki's really good at French. She spent a semester in France. So, so what happened? She didn't help you out with this? No, no, <laughs> no, Andrew. André Lefebvre in charge of this project. So we have another André in our story. All right. André Lefebvre had previously designed and raced Grand Prix cars, which actually made me wonder how many guys back in the day were both engineer and driver in, in these race cars. You know that, what I mean? Even then, even today, if you're a car guy that's an engineer, you're probably racing. 
True. Whether it's so like lemons it races is. or anything like that. I mean, just it's not that uncommon. Yeah. So Le Favre's specialty was chassis design, and he was particularly interested in maintaining contact between tires and the road surface, which I it's, mean, it's seems important. like a good, good focus. Yeah, to it's have, important. Right? <laughs> I think that's kind of the goal with every suspension designer is let's, yes. let's keep the let's, let's keep the tires on the road. Realistically, when you think about sway bars like going to a McPherson strut versus torsion bars and all these that's different things, all it, is. all it is is maintaining the the proper contact patch on exactly. the ground. Exactly, as much of the contact patch on the ground as possible. So that's what this guy's trying to do, as well. So here's a couple interesting notes about these TPV prototypes. The first prototypes were bare chassis with rudimentary controls, seating, and roof. It was apparently necessary for test drivers to wear leather flying suits that they used in World War I because they're just exposed to everything. Wait, what? There's no body on these cars. They're just bare chassis with, like, not complete controls. So they're just basically, hey, just in case you fall out, yeah, we want to make sure that you're wearing your was it, leather flying suit. So how did they be, come to this conclusion that they needed the leather? Did some, like, I, well, right, that's, some guy yeah. named, <laughs> oh, Frank, no! Yeah. <laughs> he's no good. He's, yes. he's, he's skinned alive. Uh, the prototypes Although have, these cars, I don't know that falling out of them at even their top speed would have been that dangerous. True. Good point. <laughs> yeah, you're probably fine with that leather suit on, yeah. for sure. Uh, the prototypes also only had one headlight, since that was all that was required by French law at the time, which I kind of like. Yeah, that's fine. Was it yellow? And I Oh, probably not till later. Yeah. But that actually saved weight, too. Only having one headlight. Yeah, big, uh, weight, big weight savings there. By 1939, 47 technically different and unique and incre incrementally improved experimental prototypes had been built and tested. So this department is doing work. 47 different prototypes they've gone through. These prototypes used aluminum and magnesium parts for weight savings and were powered, at least initially, by water-cooled flat two-cylinder engines powering the front wheels. Before we get too far away from kind of the pre-war era, mm -hmm. did you know that they hid these cars? The French did? I'm getting there. Okay. We're still pre-war. Okay. My yes. bad. No, no worries. Uh, the seats, if you could call them that in these prototype cars were basically hammocks hung from the roof by wires. That seems like something you would like. You seem like a hammock kind of guy. I do like hammocks. Slip into your Birkenstocks, Head put up. on your little yeah. shirt with the weird designs on it, yeah. stroll with your... I kind of want a hammock in a car now. I think you would take a hammock anywhere. That seems like right up I your... have a little travel hammock. Where it's like the parachute material hammock. Do you have a banana hammock? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> I told you a story about someone that did, though. Not uh, right now. Inside joke. Okay. Uh, then we get to the suspension system. Okay. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Amaze me. The suspension system was designed by Alphonse Fossois and used front leading arms and rear trailing arms connected to eight torsion bars beneath the rear seat eight eight so do they all meet behind the rear seat the front and rear they're all under the rear seat so, so all me, front and rear are all under the rear seat okay so i'm thinking these have I, to be going <laughs> longitudinally right the rear seat they're going like this come on how did the front ones go all the way back there <laughs> <laughs> there's a bar for the front axle right one for the rear axle an intermediate bar for each side on the front and the back, and an overload bar for each the front and the back sides. The front axle was connected to its torsion bars by cables. Are you kidding me? The overload bar came into play when the car had three people on board, two in the front and one in the rear, to support the extra load of a fourth passenger and 50 kilograms of luggage, as specified by the brief. I can only imagine what how fast that a, car would be with that much stuff in it. This is a cable-activated torsion bar suspension. Wow. It's amazing that nobody else adopted this design. <laughs> <laughs> so the car... Although your RS4 is similar with how many control oh, arms it has. Oh, yeah. Good point. It's just as convoluted, <laughs> if not worse. The car made its official debut at the Paris Motor Show in October of 1939. The car was named... The Citroen 2CV. Fantastic car. I really, really like these. I've never, I don't think that I've ever seen one in person. Have you? No, they, I haven't. I don't think so. They look like something that a guy from France 
went out in his backyard and had a bunch of corrugated fencing and went, I need to make a car. And then grabbed a bunch of corrugated fencing off and like kind of bent it all into shape. And then yeah. now I have a car with, yeah. with an, it's an umbrella with wheels. That, yeah, the umbrella with wheels. So the name 2CV, do you know about this, Chris? No. The name 2CV was actually short for Deuce Chava or two tax horsepower. So let me explain this a little bit. At the time, when you wanted to register a car in France, you would need to pay a tax on that registration to receive your road certificate that was known as a gray card. Okay. The tax was based not on the value of the car, though, but was calculated from a complex formula that was supposed to approximate how powerful the car was. So you're taxed basically on how powerful the car is, not the value. So that's almost like a fuel consumption tax it in is. a way. But here's the formula. And I want to try figuring this out on your car, Chris. Okay. Okay. Do you have a pen and paper? No. Just do it by hand then. All right. So <laughs> what, what, here, I, doing I it by hand means just, pen and paper. I just want to show how convoluted this formula is. Okay. Okay. For, for the taxation on a car. So first, take the number of cylinders. Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm opening a text document. Okay. All right. I'm good. Go for it. Take the number of cylinders. Okay. So you're doing your car that's six, right? Yep. Multiply that by the cylinder bore in centimeters. Uh, okay. Multiplied by the stroke in centimeters. Oh, I don't know the stroke of my you know, motor. I, but what I figured out here. What? This is just displacement. Oh. So a 3.2 is 3,200. Okay. Because right. bore times stroke gives you displacement. So the displacement. Okay. It's, so yes. Number of cylinders multiplied by bore and stroke is displacement. Ma uh, multiplied by the maximum engine speed in revolutions per second. God. So. Uh, <laughs> times 60. Okay, so RPM yep, times yep, yep. sixty, seventy-two hundred okay. times sixty, multiplied that then four hundred and thirty-two thousand. Okay, multiplied by a predetermined coefficient depending on the number of cylinders. So they have these listed: a single cylinder, you multiply it by zero 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 point two two cylinder, four cylinder. I do have a six cylinder coefficient for you. It is what? so zero point zero 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 one three. Where did this number come from? They figured out some formula. I don't know. <laughs> so that's your coefficient. So when you add all of that up. So I multiply my displacement by my revolutions per second. By how many cylinders you have. Wait a second. This can't be right. That's why your coefficient is so small. 0.00013. Okay. All right. So then I'm just going to put that in Google. and just. <laughs> okay. Seven, 179,712. Is that right? Times 0. Point I did. Okay. Because it's 3,200 times 432,000 times point whatever 0013, which comes to 179, 179,712. So what does that number mean? That's the amount you would pay in taxes. But in like francs or something. Right. Well, you got to keep in mind, I'm making... You're making this a, a lot of revs, a lot of power, and a lot of displacement. Right. So they don't really... This doesn't really apply this because... This doesn't apply today, but <laughs> that gives you an idea. And here's what's funny. Can you imagine the guy at the local DMV trying to figure this out without a calculator back in the day? He's got a slide rule. Well, true. I guess he probably <laughs> knows what he's doing then. So You can actually do math pretty quick with a slide rule. I've never done it. Never tried it. Never? Me either. Nope. <laughs> then how do you know? <laughs> As I just copy-pasted this into Google. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So the 2CV, as we know, became a sensation. The, pri the final production version had an air-cooled front engine originally offering 9 horsepower, powering the front wheels. It had great fuel economy and an extremely long travel suspension. It received its nickname of an umbrella on wheels from the full-width canvas rollback roof. Now, this was actually the, designed... I like, the, I like the roof on those. It's, do you know what great. this was for? This wasn't just to give you, like, a drop top. This was for function, as it accommodated... So you could dukes a hazard in and out of it. No, it accommodated <laughs> oversized loads to be loaded and carried extending out of the top. So basically, your shovels and rakes. Who needs a truck when you have a car without a roof? Yeah, but what are you putting back there besides hay shovels bales. and rakes? Nobody's a putting cow. hay bales. I don't know. Come on, nobody's putting they a cow. They built these so that farmers could use them, though. That's true. In total, Citroen manufactured 8.8 million 2CVs from 1948 to 1990. One side note here. during the I'm, the, I'm trying to figure out my this horsepower thing. My mind is going crazy <laughs> with this formula. So, and the United States used this too. Did you see that? Mm -mm. 
During the early 20th century, automobiles in the United States were specified with a figure identical to RAC, which is the British version of this, and computed okay. using the same formula, but it was known as NACC horsepower, or the National National Automobile Chamber of Commerce, or ALAM horsepower, Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, or SAE horsepower. So, uh, oh, interesting. Yeah, I so imagine that For the Society of Automotive Engineers. So when you see SAE horsepower, yes. it's using a formula similar to this for gotcha. SAE horsepower. Yeah, I'm sure the coefficient is just different right. that they use. I'm, you know, I have my certification from the Society of Automotive Engineers. Is that where you also got your certification in seahorses? That is a different organization. (laughs) That is a different certifying body. What's the coefficient for (laughs) seahorse power? (laughs) I don't know that, but it is a horsepower, seahorse power. I like that. All right. So you may have realized that they debuted the car in 1939, but I just said they didn't produce them until 1948. Any guesses on why that may have been? Probably because their entire country was decimated by Nazis. Yeah, that's right. World War II. So it's interesting to note that during the German occupation of France in World War II, Pierre-Jules Boulanger, yeah, that's probably right, Uh, he was the president of Citroën at the time. He refused to meet Dr. Ferdinand Porsche or communicate directly with German authorities. He instead used intermediaries and organized a secret, quote, go slow operation on the production of trucks for the Nazi Wehrmark. So So basically, hey, put this together as slow as possible. The Nazis are like, what are with these lazy French? These guys are. That's what I was thinking. Is that where the stereotype came from? Oh, these French are so lazy. Well, yeah, (laughs) because they don't want to build your Nazi trucks for you. I don't know. So in my favorite detail of this entire story, though, Many of these trucks were sabotaged at the factory by putting the notch on the oil dipstick too low. Oh, I love it. Which resulted in engine seizure from the lack of oil. These guys, these Germans are like, man, these things are pieces of crap. I can't believe. Why don't we should be building these in Berlin? Look at all the amazing things we're driving around on the Autobahn. These French, they don't know how to build anything. (laughs) So they're just putting the oil dipstick too low. I love that detail. So, in fact, in 1944, when the Gestapo headquarters in Paris was sacked by the French resistance, Boulanger's name was prominent on a Nazi blacklist of the most important enemies of the Reich and to be arrested in the event of an Allied invasion of France. So he was like enemy number one, but they kept working with him because he had all these factories. Right. They had to. They didn't have a choice. Yeah. So So what happened to him when they landed in Normandy and everything I guess they didn't get a hold of him. They, yeah, he, he was. Yeah, he probably, his plans, I'm sure, all fell apart when we invaded. Yeah, well, at that at that point, I mean, it was already kind of the beginning of the end of the war right. on two fronts for Germany. Yeah, the writing was on the wall. They probably were like, "Well, this car manufacturer guy." You know, they probably thought the guy was going to turn around and start manufacturing tanks if they didn't keep an eye on him or some sort of. <laughs> seriously, I mean, a lot. Of, yeah, just think about what we did. I mean, a lot of stuff got turned over into making war implements. True. So if you have factories like this and you're able to churn out, you know, war imp- implements of war, whether it's tanks or vehicles or whatever, yeah, that mobility was war back then. Being right. able to transport goods, troops, all yeah. that stuff. So that's probably why they wanted to keep an eye on them. But when you're running away, it doesn't really matter anymore mm, at no. that point. But yeah, that's why they didn't obviously manufacture the two CV because all of his manufacturing plants were turned into making Nazi trucks or destroyed or destroyed. So what happened? I mean, surely they must've kept some of this stuff around so they could build the car later. Yeah. So I think you actually dug into that a little bit. I did. So back, I know just recently they found some of the prototypes of the, of this vehicle. I'm like <laughs> the trying TPV. to the TPV. No, we said uh, we said the two, two CV. Oh, two CV. That's right. It's uh, so basically four pre-war prototype two CVs will be on show. And this is a while ago, but um, originally developed in the thirties. Most of the um, two CVs were destroyed before the war. Sure. So they didn't want, they're like, Oh, our two CV is so amazing. We don't want yeah, to they spent how long, you know, producing this thing. Theoretically, this is a better vehicle than a beetle. Right. Right. I mean, you could carry eggs in this car and you, can also carry eggs in a beetle. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the, uh, the fourth was stored by Michelin, and uh, three of them were hidden in barns. And wow. they found these cars just just recently, and they were and so th- they hid them away. 
that's and I'm awesome. sure I think they also um, I read somewhere that they hid away the the tooling sure and all the things to stamp the body parts and stuff like that because they didn't want the stuff to um, fall into German hands right and I'm sure they were basically ramped up ready to start production right as the work kind of broke out because right. they had it at the auto show in Paris. Right. So they were ready to go. I mean, let's be honest. They weren't complicated vehicles to, no. to put together. True. Although, although we're talking at it in terms of today's standards, right? Yeah, no. Back, but back in the then, day. maybe it was really complicated to put yeah. together when you have a cable that runs 75 torsion bars. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> All right. So let's fast forward to October 5th, 1955, again at the Paris Motor Show. After 18 years of secret development to the successor of the Traction Avant, Citroen <laughs> introduced what is arguably its most influential model, even ahead of the 2CV. In the first 15 minutes of the Paris Motor Show, 743 individual orders for this car were taken, and orders for the first day totaled 12,000. So they went on to sell... Five million of these two a, CVs. Yes. But here's here's the you know how many Mustangs they sold? No. Five or ten million. They sold twenty one million That's Beatles. Right. Okay, so just to give you a perspective on how many of these things that they were able to sell, five million. I mean, the Mustang is well thought of as like one of the top selling cars of right. all time. They still sold five million of these stupid things, but they weren't even sold in the United States or anywhere other than Europe, really. So they were actually. Were they sold here? Yes. Okay. They were. I, th I have I, production figures on that. Okay. But here's the figure. So back at the auto show, here's the figure that blows my mind. Okay. During the next ten days after the debut of this car, the model took in eighty thousand individual deposits these are people actually depositing money Eighty thousand in 10 days even just the logistics of doing that yeah. even if you have everyone there like you're, you're not getting money. take my money it's not it's not like you have paypal where you can just be like right. yeah paypal me the depositors this has to be people literally lining up with money in their with hand money to give you that gives you a sense of how amazing this car was when it debuted it's almost and, like it's tesla i hate you I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, did you know this? No. No. Well, tell me. I don't know. What's what's the deal? So, this 80,000 deposits in 10 days was a record that stood for over 60 years until it was eclipsed by the Tesla Model 3, which received 180,000 deposits on its first day. I wonder if we can adjust that for population inflation, though. And how about, like, the internet? Yeah, that's right? what I'm saying. I mean, it's it's <laughs> the Tesla's thing, cool, but the Citroen thing is monumental. More it's earth moving in terms of impressive. the logistics, and I mean, how many people were in France versus how many people are around America that or, could have access to a Tesla? Exactly, I mean, it's, it, it's way much of a bigger feat. Yeah. So, to a France still deep in reconstruction after World War II, the Citroen DS was a symbol of French ingenuity. So, fun fact. The name DS itself was a sort of pun in French. Uh, pronounced DSA in French for DS, it also is the same pronunciation or sounds like the term goddess in okay. French. Okay, so the DS... Deus, Deus, whatever. Yes, yeah. Deus sounds like goddess. So yep. it'd be like the, the Ford goddess or whatever. I, but it's more funny because it's, it's letters, right? So it's not right. supposed to be that. Um, there was a simpler companion model to the DS called the ID, which had... It was similar styling and chassis, but less of the technical stuff that I'll get into in a minute. The ID was pronounced as IDA, which translates to idea. So okay. they kind of carried that over. I just thought I'd never heard that before, what That's the clever. DS was. Yes. So one of the hallmark features of the DS was its novel. When did the DS start to come out? When was What, what years are we talking here? This was in, what did I say? 55. Okay. Yes. Uh, so the hallmark feature really? of this car. Really? 55? 1955. Okay. I thought it was later than that. They, well, they made them for a long time. Yes. 55 is when they debuted. Uh, the hallmark feature, though, Chris, was its hydro-pneumatic suspension, which included an automatic leveling system and variable ground clearance. This is height-adjustable self-leveling suspension in 1955. And one of the coolest things about this suspension is how you change the I, spare yes, tire. Yes, let me tell you about that. So the suspension allowed the DS to travel quickly on the poor road surface common in war-torn France. That's really why they developed this car, is you can go over to these massive potholes and bomb craters, and it'll ride nice. And in reality, everything on this car was hydraulic. 
The vehicle had power steering, a semi-automatic transmission in which the transmission required no clutch pedal, but gears still had to be shifted by hand. However, the shift lever was not controlled via linkage, but by hydraulic linkage. What wasn't controlled by hydraulics on that car? The radio? I don't know, because in addition, <laughs> the car featured a fiberglass roof to lower the center of gravity. It had inboard front brakes as well as independent suspension to reduce unsprung weight. The different front and rear track widths reduced unequal tire loading, therefore reducing understeer. So the one thing I didn't know was that the DS actually had a successful history in rally racing. Okay. This is not a car you think of as a rally car. Well, why not? It's got well, how many torsion bars does this thing have? Right. So I guess it makes sense <laughs> because Wikipedia tells me that quote rallying is where sustained speeds on poor surfaces are paramount. So I think these things, the hydraulic fluid was shared between like the suspension and the yes. transmission. So, have, do you know what the kind of pressures we're yes, talking I about do. here? Yes. Let me don't don't bury the lead here. Let okay. me get to this. But yes, I'm believe me, Chris. We're gonna nerd out in a minute. Okay. okay? I, I love it. So. Adidas actually won the Monte Carlo Rally in 1959. I didn't realize they won. And in the 1000 Lakes Rally, whatever that is, a DS19 That must be in driven. Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that too. No, 1000 Lakes, not 10,000. Oh, we could right. have 10 well, of these races. Come that's on. That's true. <laughs> so Adidas was driven to victory in 1962. In 1966, the DS won the Monte Carlo Rally again with some controversy though, as the competitive BMC Mini Cooper team was disqualified due to rule infractions, whatever that was. Ironically, though, Mini was involved with DS competition again two years later when, quote, a drunk driver in a Mini in Sydney, Australia, crashed into the DS that was leading the 1968 London-Sydney Marathon 98 miles from the finish line. Which, wait a minute, was the drunk guy racing? Was he <laughs> in the race and just happened to be drunk piloting this? I the couldn't find this out. The suspension is that good. <laughs> I no, this is the guy in the mini. So oh, the suspension's okay. that, bad that bad that he just had to keep drinking to get through this race. Regardless, in 1962, the DS was restyled with a more aerodynamically efficient nose, better ventilation, and other improvements. Then again, in 1968, the DS and the ID, that companion model, were again restyled with a more streamlined headlamp design, giving the car a notably shark-like appearance. The design has I, four... I absolutely love the way these things look. And I know there's people that don't like them because they're like just kind of weird, but... Especially absolutely... in 1955, the thing just must have looked out of this world. So the headlights, did you know how, how like innovative these headlights are too? Yeah. Yeah, so this design had four headlights under a smooth glass canopy. The inner set swiveled with the steering wheel. This allowed the driver to, quote, see around turns, which is especially valuable on twisting roads driving at high speed. And the directional headlamps were linked to the wheels by cable. So they were using cables again instead of hydraulics, I guess. Uh, behind each glass cover lens, the inboard high beams would swivel up to 80 degrees, which is almost a right turn. Like you can, that's a lot of. I've had a few cars that do this. Yeah. Now, so, and they always break. It oh, seems really? like cables would have been a better option. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, the outboard low beam headlamps, though, are self-leveling in response to pitching caused by accelerating and blanking. Braking. Braking. You blanked on that. I blanked on the braking. <laughs> but, like, think about it. When a car, like, if you're accelerating hard and it squats or dives under hard braking, your headlights go down with it. These, This is just something that other manufacturers straight. do now. But yes. they didn't do it until the 21st century. Exactly. Like, you have it in Volkswagen. A lot of European cars have I this. Know. I don't the, think a lot of Audi American cars do. It. Yeah, they yeah. have the, they have up and down and left and right. Like yes. you get into your Audi, you turn it on, and, and the goes, headlights. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, they yeah, go up, like down, it. left, right, and it's kind of like, yeah, I've got this feature <laughs> on my car, which I think one of mine is not aligned, which I don't know because it self aligns every time, but it's aligning slightly off. Right, maybe. Anyways, the DS won't do that. Uh, this feature though was not allowed in the U.S. at the time, of course. Uh, the DS, though, was sold in North America from 1956 With fixed headlights, some, to 1972. Some, so what's the market like on some of these headlights on eBay? I oh, wonder. I, yeah. It's got to sure, be crazy. Every guy over here wants those headlights. Uh, well, despite its popularity in Europe, it didn't sell well in the U.S. and only a little better in Canada. Uh, while promoted as a luxury car, it did not have the basic features that American buyers wanted in 1960s and 70s. Right. You know, such as an automatic transmission, air conditioning, power windows, or a V8, most namely. Further harming the DS's prospects on this side of the Atlantic was an inadequate supply of parts for the vehicle. Jay Leno, 
worked at a citron dealer in Boston during the 1970s. He described the sporadic supply of spare parts as a massive problem for customers. Sure, you can buy one of these things, but when you bring it in for service, well, sorry, man, we're going to wait two months for this spare part to get here. Yeah, right. Several variations of the car were offered over the years. A convertible model was offered from 1958 to 1973. A station wagon version was introduced in early on in the 1958 model. Uh, it was known by various names in different markets. The DS Brake in France. The DS Safari and Estate in well, the UK. Well, they were way ahead of their time with the, the Safari, Safari marketing. Bill, right? And the DS Wagon. In the U.S. <laughs> oh, it wasn't called the traction wagon? <laughs> no! The French version, or brake, had two side-facing seats in the made loading area in the back. So, that's kind of cool. You're able to face each other as passengers instead of just facing forward. Right. There was also an ambulance configuration in France with a 60-30 split folding rear seat to accommodate a stretcher. So, was this because the rest of the cars that the French made sucked so they just probably use the DS probably the safari model as you alluded to before became popular as a camera car notably by the BBC the hydrodynamic suspension supposedly produced an extremely stable platform for filming it's the, it's the steady driving. cam it's the steady it cam is car the steady cam of the 60s so do you want to nerd out and know how this crazy suspension actually worked yes one thing I want to say first before you do that is, did you know that this this concept made its way into other cars yes, in ways? Like, not well. Not well. So Rolls-Royce yep. uses it for their brakes. So does Bentley. So basically this, and it, people have lost fingers. Yes. They've lost hands. Yes. Because of this system. It's, this system is basically a bomb. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So with the hydromatic suspension system, each wheel is connected not to a spring, but to a hydraulic suspension unit consisting of a hydraulic accumulatosphere of about 12 wait, wait, centimeters. Wait, what was it? A what? I love that word. It's like accumulator sphere. Accumulatosphere. Yep. It's about 12 centimeters in diameter containing pressurized nitrogen, a cylinder containing hydraulic fluid screwed to the suspension fear, a piston inside the cylinder connected by levers to suspension itself, and a damper valve between the piston and the sphere. The central part of the hydraulic system was the high-pressure pump, which maintained a consistent pressure of 2,540 PSI. So basically, if you've got a leak in this line or you crack something open when it's pressurized, it will cut your finger off. Yes. It will 100% do it, and it has 100% happened to it's people. It's like a super... It's, well, it's a water jet. Yeah. It is a water jet. Right. You're, but it's hydraulic fluid. Yeah. <laughs> I, think so, it, I think they use mineral oil. For those water jets? No, for the um, for the fluid. So I cut this whole big... It would have took me another 20 minutes to go through the fluid on this, so I'll give you what I remember. Okay. Yes, so they originally used mineral fluid, but when they imported them to the U.S., the DOT was st starting to crack down on different fluid types. So like brake fluid even, DO3 brake fluid had to be a certain color right. and everything else. And so they That's like, why my Ate Blue Super Blue is gone and banned. Yes. And in nineteen sixty two, hydraulic fluid was supposed to always be green. And then they decided, oh, wait a minute, this better type of fluid is better, whatever. Um so they swapped it mid year. Okay. So now you had green fluid and mid year everything in the US had to be red. That's why all your brake fluid is red now. Okay. Well it's not it's, no, clear, it's not red, it's clear. Regardless. It well, it's, like, ch it's changed it's, over and over. Imagine crazy. being a manufacturer this time and being like, well, what color does the United States want this time? Yes. Why does everything have to be red, white, or blue? What's going on? Yeah, so they <laughs> did use like a mineral oil for this system, though. Right. You're, you're correct in that. Um, where am I? The motion of the wheels translated to a motion of the piston, which acted on the oil in the nitrogen cushion and provided the springing effect. So it's the compression of this nitrogen in the system that's right. giving you the spring. The damper valve took place of the shock absorber in a conventional suspension. So the way I like to think of this is you have basically a hydraulic cylinder at the wheel. And the hydraulic cylinder is then connected to this accumulosphere, which then compresses the nitrogen and also has the dampening And these valve. are the, when you look under the hood of a, D, a hood of a DS, it's the green balls that are under there. <laughs> <laughs> Not the blue balls, yeah, the, the green, green balls, balls that yeah, are okay. underneath the hood. That's what's holding the nitrogen. It's got the bladder in it, gotcha. which basically is because you've got fluid on one side and then the, it's almost like a, a, if you have a well at your house, it's like a pressure, it's the same yeah, style sure, of pressure it has tank. The bladder. So it, then it it's able to maintain the pressure at a constant based on 
you know, the, the right. diaphragm that's in there pushing her back and forth. So here's where things got even more complicated. The hydraulic Is that possible? Yes. The hydraulic cylinder was fed with hydraulic fluid from the main pressure reservoir via a height corrector which is a valve controlled by the mid-position of the anti-roll bar connected to the axle. If the suspension was too low, the height corrector introduced high-pressure fluid. If it was too high, it released fluid back into the fluid reservoir. In this manner, a constant ride height was maintained on all four corners. It's pretty amazing if you think it about it. It's, it's And it's all mechanical. Like, we have this a little bit on modern cars where it just has a little, like, sensor where it tells you, oh, this corner's too low or whatever it is adjust the magnetic ride control that right. Jamura helped develop. Yep. Well, this is all done with mechanical valves. A control in the cabin allowed the driver to select one of five predetermined heights. Normal ride height, two slightly higher ride heights for poor terrain, and two extreme positions. Wait, wait, wait where's the dumped option? Where's, yeah, the, where's, the, 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 where's stance, the stance option? The stance option. Actually, here's what's cool about these things. I also didn't include this. When you park the car, because the pump, the high-pressure pump isn't running, it does slowly squat itself yeah, down. Yeah. That's so so it, it does dump itself it to does, stance mode it after a while. It does park hard. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you have this, not only does it self-level, and everything else, you have control in the cabin to raise it and lower it. Sure. And the two extreme I only want to lower it. That's all I want to do. But the two extreme height positions were for changing wheels. Therefore, the DS did not have a jack for lifting the car off the ground. Instead, the hydraulic system enabled wheel changes with the aid of a simple adjustment stand. So here's what you do. To change a flat tire, one would adjust the suspension to its topmost extreme setting insert a stand which only affects not lifting the car up just that little hydraulic valve that tells it where the height adjustment is then you put the height all the way low and what it does it tells that corner it's too high and we'll just lift it up it looks like a dog peeing on a hydrant it right. just and lifts you, up you one of those doing it on the rear is interesting because you have to take the fender off oh yeah because it's all skirted it's because it's all skirted so you have to take that off to get at any of it yeah, so the flat tire would, quote, retract upwards and hover above the ground, ready to be changed. I love it. So if you think that system is complex, Chris, listen to the hydraulically controlled manual transmission. <laughs> okay. To change gears, the driver flicked a lever behind the steering wheel to the next position and eased up on the accelerator pedal. The hydraulically controlled disengaged the clutch, engaged the nominated gear, and re-engaged the clutch. So this is... This is a clutchless semi-automatic transmission, okay? So you're driving, you flick a switch instead of doing the clutch, let up on the gas a little bit, and so is select that your next in, gear. So is it putting it in a neutral when you flick the switch? Not entirely. Okay. The speed of the engagement of the clutch was controlled by a centrifugal regulator sensing engine RPM and driven off the camshaft by a belt, the position of the butterfly valve in the carburetor, i.e. the position of the accelerator, and the braking circuit. When the brake was pressed, the engine idle speed dropped to an RPM below the clutch engagement speed, thus preventing friction while stopping in gear in traffic and at lights. When the brake was released, the idle speed increased the clutch dragging speed. Basically, it's very French, very crazy. And keep in mind, the modern automatic transmission that we know today was already being used widely in the U.S. But so it's not like they But they're didn't massive exist. and heavy. That's the thing is that the torque converter is massive and heavy. I and they would must rather have that than the complexity of this damn thing. So it basically took into effect so here's engine the thing. speed, if, braking pressure. If I've got to do this stupid position, little... Blip the thr blip the lever thing. Just give me a manual transmission to begin with. If I'm if I already have to do something, I don't know. Yeah. If the, I don't the know. whole point of an automatic transmission is to do nothing, right? So if I have to kind of do something, I might as it's, well just I might yeah. as well just do the whole thing. But this is, I guess, in a sense, more luxurious than having to shift and put it into gear and everything else. This you you flick a switch and you do that. And keep in mind, it's not mechanically linked. Your, your lever is all hydraulically linked. So did they do this for the entirety of the DS, like, forever? Was this always the way that it was? As far as I know. Okay, so they never went to, like, a torque converter? As far as I know, no. Okay, well, that's ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> now, onto the engine. Okay. <laughs> so the DS was originally designed around an air-cooled flat six a la a Porsche 911. The design was supposed to be based on the two-cylinder engine of the 2CV, just multiplied times three. However, technical and monetary problems forced the idea to be scrapped. So for a modern car that has such ridiculously complex and high-tech systems, the engine was archaic. It was so why one... <laughs> did they just... 
<laughs> we just don't have. I don't have, know if this was just the last thing they. We did. ran out of engineers. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it was a 1.9 liter four cylinder generating 75 horsepower at 4,500 RPM. Uh, Wait, what? 75 horsepower? Yes. How much did these things weigh? Do we know? Mm, no, they could not have been light with all that hydraulic. No, definitely fluid. not. The DS had the gearbox mounted in front of the engine, though, is interesting. So it's a front wheel drive car engine behind the gearbox. So about 2,800 pounds. Yeah, that's or 3,000 pounds, which at the time is not light. Ridiculous. Um, 75 horsepower and 3,000 pounds? Yeah, it's not going to Wow. It's, it, hey, it'll I, be a nice ride. Yeah. <laughs> I would be, if I was having a heart attack and I saw the Citroen oh, the hospital. Oh, no. the, the ambulance show up, I'd be like, oh, I'm going to die. <laughs> I will say they did um, have different, like the DS19 was like the bigger one at the end of the production run, but they didn't, they didn't increase them much. I think it got up to 145 horsepower at the end. That was it. That's, which is better than that's 75. That's reasonable. I can, I can get by with that. Right. Uh, but as I was saying, the gearbox is mounted in front of the engine, front-wheel drive configuration. So some consider the DS to be a mid-front engine. Okay. There you go. So there's no doubt that the DS, that, excuse me, the DS is an icon through automotive history and culture. We've seen it in movies and everything else. However, there is one story that stands out amongst the rest. All right. Enter Charles de Gaulle. Yeah, I know that name. That's... So Charles de Gaulle was a French army officer and statesman who not only led the French resistance against Nazi Germany, he chaired the provisional government of the French Republic from 1944 to 1946 in order to reestablish democracy in France. He was then later elected president of the French Republic, a position he held until its, his resignation in 1969. Now, in 1962, President de Gaulle granted independence to Algeria, a North African country that was up till then a French colony, and it was kind of emblazoned in a bloody, you know, war or conflict to, to get independence. Uh, his decision greatly angered the OAS, a paramilitary group who wanted Algeria to stay French. So much so, they decided to assassinate him. <laughs> now, apparently... De Gaulle was the subject of some 30 different assassination attempts. 30? Yes. You're sleeping with one eye open and you're, you, have a, you probably have a food taster at that point. I don't know how you live like that. So it happened that while De Gaulle was being driven with his wife to the airport, 12 OAS gunmen opened fire on the presidential Citroen DS. I forgot to mention this is also the car that they picked for all government officials is the DS. It sounds like, did they have any other cars? We're going to use it for containers. the ambulance. We're going to use it for this. We're going to use it for that. It's just, there's just nothing yeah. else. So as the History Channel tells it, quote, a hail of 140 bullets, most of them coming from behind, killed two of the president's motorcycle bodyguards, shattering the car's rear window and puncturing all four of its tires. The DS then went into a skid However, the car's suspension kept it level, and the driver was able to recover even without the aid of any tires being inflated. Lifesaver. De Gaulle's driver managed to escape the situation, and the president and his wife made it to the airport unharmed. Which, this was a later model, so I think it had maybe 100 and some horsepower and flat tires. What were the gunmen driving? Maybe they, maybe they were away. just behind a tree. Like, oh, they just like, popped maybe out from behind a tree. Driving. Okay. Yeah. But anyways, this attempted killing was dramatized in the film The Day of the Jackal, which I'm trying to remember if I've seen that one. That doesn't sound familiar to me. The DS's role in thwarting the attempt on his life made de Gaulle a lover of the car even more than he already had been. He refused to travel in anything other than a Citroen DS. I, I would imagine. I'm surprised he didn't just live in the thing in based on 30 fact, attempts. Such was his affection for the car that when Fiat sought to take troubled Citroen over in 1969, de Gaulle limited their stake in the company to only 15%. Citroen would end up staying in French hands as part of the PSA Peugeot Citroen group. And so, Chris, from the humble beginnings of André Citroën, the great-grandson of a lemon seller, to the company that mobilized a nation and advanced technologies ahead of their time, not to mention inadvertently saving the life of a president, Citroën is both a manufacturer and a story to behold. 
It truly is. And what is Citroen up to now? What did you find out? What are they? I did not do anything currently. Have you looked into this? I have not. Um, uh, I, I did say in my research they had a new uh, DS like concept car. That sounds awesome. Well, everybody's going for the throwback cool. stuff. So these cars, um, do you want a DS? They after researching this, I at least want to drive one for a while. So I, I do know of one that's around. I'm gonna try you and saw get saw one at Cars and Coffee. Yeah, I know him. It's it's gold, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know him. I'd I'd love to take a look at it. But so these things have been going up in value just like I everything can else. You can't you can get so the the mid sixties and early sixties stuff is ugly. They're, they, okay. don't, they don't look very good. You want like an early seventies Citroen DS, maybe like a sixty nine, seventy even. And those are the ones that you kind of recognize and you like, but they're they range anywhere from 10, 15, 20, 30,000. The problem is is that if they don't work really well, yeah. you're you are in for As it. As Jay Leno said, it's probably still hard to get parts for these. It things. probably is. I mean, you're not 3D printing something that can hold 2000 psi. I mean, you're just Ugh. you're just not doing it. So, it's I guess it's definitely one of those pay now or pay later type of cars yeah, no kidding. when you think about buying one. But they are I think they're beautiful and I've seen a few of them that are just absolutely slammed with cool wheels. And they look well. As just we said, killer. I'm sure they were just parked for a while, and therefore just kind of sank down to the parking position. I think it's the fact that the whole the body line goes straight from the headlights all the way back to the rear end. Yeah, it's a it's really really beautiful cool design. Styling. So when they're low and they're on the ground, it just looks like it just is growing out of the ground just yeah. right there. Awesome. They're great looking cars. Anyway, I hope you really enjoyed that history episode. I know I did. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Great job, Jake. And uh, we will be back. I don't. I forget who's coming on next week. I don't know. I will have to. Uh, oh, we've got the Fourth of July episode. Oh, is what's I am prepping up. a Fourth of July episode next week. So we are way over time. Uh, let's we, we can talk about that when it comes up. And uh, hopefully, you guys will head over to iTunes, leave us a five star review. Um, thanks again, Jake. That was great. Yeah. Catch you guys next week. Take care.